Hi, I'm Lisa Lancer-Rose, an award-winning author, educator, and dog trainer with a passion for animals. Now more than ever, people feel alienated from the natural world and worried about animal life. Join me and my guests as we take you deep into the lives and minds of our fellow creatures, hoping to forge a bond strong enough to save us all on This Animal Life. I'm so excited that I found you and, and that you agreed to meet with me before Christmas so we can do a little Rudolph business. Yeah, it's great to have a bit of a laugh. And yeah. Yeah, I found a picture of a reindeer's nose, red. Yes, I'm doing that particular study one that we were talking about on next Friday for the veterinary students. Okay. So I'm, I'm doing that because it's science. And then, of course, I'm doing a bunch of diseases, which most people wouldn't be interested in, including you. So you could say this time of year, Rudolph's red nose is a hot topic. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we better not go. I could get myself into trouble talking about hot. Oh, yeah. I have no doubt. <laughs> I am so happy that our guest today is Jerry Haig. He's a wildlife vet, author, storyteller, and woodworker. His book, Reindeer Reflections, Lessons from an Ancient Culture, came out this fall. And we're jumping on it because, of course, Rudolph. But uh, for now, Rudolph can cool it because um, we need to meet Jerry. Jerry, thank you so much for being here. Well, it's a pleasure. Delighted to meet you, Lisa. And you are up in Saskatchewan, right? That's right, the city of Saskatoon. Saskatoon. And um, let's just settle a couple of things for clarity so we know what we're talking about. Um, could you tell me and our listeners about the words reindeer and caribou? Absolutely. Um, the wild ones in North America are caribou. The wild ones all across Eurasia, from Norway to the east of Russia, are reindeer. Those are the wild ones. Okay. The tame ones are all reindeer, wherever they are. So that's, of course, Eurasia. There's a tremendous number in Russia and associated countries, uh, like Mongolia, for instance, which I'm sure we'll come back to. And there are reindeer in North America, which arrived in 1871, when um, uh, Captain Healy found that the, the native Eskimos, as they were called then, uh, were starving because they had nothing because oh. marine mammals had been killed. And so he bought 17 animals from Russia because he'd found out they were really tame. He'd seen the people herding them. Uh -huh. So they brought them across and they quickly multiplied and became huge numbers in quite short order. But there were pre-existing caribou or no? That was, oh, yes, we, there were, I thought so. Okay. Caribou have never been tamed. Sometimes I saw that reindeer and caribou were actually the same animal genetically or, or, almost entirely yeah, the same right. animal genetically, but uh, reindeer tended to refer to the tame or domesticated and caribou as wild, but we, we always refer to reindeer as reindeer. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that's what we'll be calling them through this conversation. And a reindeer is an ungulate. That's right. <laughs> reindeer in, in particular are so much more fascinating than I thought they were. We don't call a male reindeer a buck. It's a bull, right? Yeah, that's right. Even though it's a deer. 
And the female is not a doe, but a cow. And they don't have fawns. They have calves. Why did we domesticate them and not zebra or other deer or elk or moose? And you also have a book about moose, too. I do. Yep. Yeah. Domestication actually is a question of of how they are domesticated um, by long, long association with human beings. I mean, there's a suggestion in Mongolia, for instance, that they may have been domesticated at least 3,000 years ago. Wow. More. Nobody can really tie that, that down exactly. So humanity and reindeer go way back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it might be a lot more. And there's a, a, there are several different uh, definitions of domestication. And the one about reindeer was, developed, was written by Dr. Greg Finstad from Alaska. And he states the process of genetically manipulating an animal or plant through artificial selection to better suit the needs of human beings. And what has happened is over a millennia that reindeer that started, of course, in Eurasia have shorter heads. This is the domestic ones. Remember, the wild ones are still reindeer. Okay, so there is some genetic difference between the wild ones. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they've got shorter heads, prominent foreheads, shorter limbs, and they're calm. And that's, of course, really crucial. Okay. So they've been selectively bred for temperament. Yeah. Yeah. But not just temperament. There are four breeds, for instance. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. No. Well, it depends where they are. Some of them are developed just for herding and and slaughter and meat supply and, and others for riding, but they're not milked. And then you go onto the extreme east of Russia and the Totka um, people, they're kind of all-purpose animals. They milk them, ride them, harness them, and produce meat. And then you have special ones in Scotland, just the one herd, which are not milked, but they are harnessed, and they're very tame. They come right up to you. They're an Ice Age animal, right? I suppose so, yeah. I was looking at the folklore that you have in your book, and I... Some of that is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it's really interesting. The folklore origin tales uh, seem to have to do with cooperation, where the reindeer agrees to live in the company of humans and in exchange for protection. Yeah. And, and they, they will give all the things that you said more. I mean, these, these people used absolutely every part of their body and use them for um, riding and hauling and as well as meat and warmth, their, um, their pelts. Yeah, the pelts are there's that really interesting story um, about the birth of a calf uh, that comes out of a tree. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Yeah. And that was the beginning of the race. And those, it says, uh, forever after the reindeer who were born wild stayed wild. But for those who were born with human health, there was no going back. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And there's the other folklore, which I love, that I learned from a young woman I worked with in Mongolia, which has a water element. The floods came oh. up. The, the animals and the people were isolated on the top of the mountain uh, above the floods. And then they agreed to cooperate. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And they're, they're very good swimmers. Oh, phenomenal. Because they've got this hollow hair in the coat. Uh, the long winter coat has hollow hairs in it. They're quite long. And so they're, they're like a life jacket, except not just around your chest, but everywhere from, from front to back. Right. And the purpose of it is because it, it's insulating there. Um, yep. They must be pretty darn warm in there. And the temperatures go down, right? How, how, what can they survive? Oh, they have no trouble at all at minus 30. Wow. Minus, minus 50. Now that's in centigrade. I don't know what that converts to in your scale, but cold. 
I know minus 40 is the same on both scales. Okay. <laughs> okay. Minus 40 is pretty darn <laughs> Um So now you're a vet and you had written a book about moose and you've written books about elephants. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. How did you end up taking care of such varied creatures on such disparate continents? Well, um, when I left veterinary school in 65, where I, I did my degree in Glasgow, Scotland, I went back to Kenya, which was my birth country, three days after graduation. And I started doing general practitioner work with one exception. My very third day I was there, I was asked to go and see a lame giraffe. And things sort of spiraled from there. Okay. Um, and uh, then I got involved with rhino work, uh, quite a lot of it. And one of my classic stories in my first book, The Wrestling with Rhinos, was having to give a four-gallon enema to a rhino. Because <laughs> <laughs> it had got bunged up. It had been in a, a um, what do we call it politely, a fight. Foreplay, in fact. The bull had got oh. off, pounded up the rear end. It hadn't defecated no. or urinated or anything for four days. No. So I had to evacuate it and See, then give it this enema. And it you, was you've been so intimate with so many strange and wonderful creatures. <laughs> Few of us can imagine. And so I, I always enjoyed writing as a kid, you know, writing as, as a schoolboy in Britain. I had to write once a week to my parents. Oh, okay. Before. I was in a boarding school. And so that was absolutely mandatory. So you were a budding memoirist. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> How did you end up tending reindeer? Oh, well, the first surprise was the first day I got to Canada after leaving Kenya. And I walked into the zoo and I was with the, the animal head animal keeper. We walked around looking at the animals in the pen and I'd never seen most of them. And um, we come around the corner and there's a pen with some reindeer in it. And I thought, well, interesting. And I said to him, oh, reindeer, you've got reindeer. And he said, no, no, they're caribou. Okay. So I walked over and looked at the pen. And that seemed bizarre because I'd never even heard of a caribou. Oh. And like, no, how could I? I was living in Africa. Right. So I went to the library, looked them up. And the four pages in the Mammals of Canada used both words interchangeably. Okay. So that was my very first encounter with a caribou stroke reindeer. Oh, they're, they're stunningly beautiful. Aren't they? Yes. Um, my <laughs> only familiarity with reindeer, of course, is Christmas. And uh, as a child of the 60s, I think it was 1964, was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the stop motion animation. Some things that I noticed now, now that I've been you know, reading your book and researching reindeer is how different the reindeer look. I mean, okay, it's a cartoon, there's stop motion, but the animator made them look more like white-tailed deer than uh, reindeer. That doesn't surprise me. We're <laughs> <No. laughs> not American, let's face it. And they are, um, they're kind of feeble in comparison. They're feeble looking. Uh -huh. um, you know, a, a reindeer calf, as soon as it's born, it can run. Yep. And uh, of course, this, uh, these reindeer, uh, Rudolph is born and he, he's tottering when that's not true at all. And then you see the adults and they just look like regular bucks, white-tailed bucks. But a, a, a mature reindeer is truly breathtakingly handsome, magnificent. I mean, until you see them standing next to them, they are kind of small. 
uh, they're nowhere near as tall as a as an adult human. No, and of course the the thing that most people don't realize is that all the reindeer they see pulling sleds or whatever, real ones, none of them are, are entire males. They're either castrated males or females. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry to disappoint folks, but Rudolph is actually either a castrated male or a female. <laughs> and Donner and Blixen are, are non-based, they're, they're non-gender based. Another fault in this show, because I think is is Rudolph's father might be Donner. Rudolph's father, father is one of the ones pulling the sleigh. That's maybe in your, your animated stop motion. But it's <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so the most interesting thing about Rudolph is that he has the red nose. And uh, in your book, you wrote, the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer evolved from an 1823 anonymously published poem called A Visit from St. Nicholas. Yeah. Readers may be distressed to learn there is no mention of Rudolph in the original. <laughs> the newer version of the song became a massive hit after it aired in 1964 on the NBC network in a stop-motion animated TV special under the same name. You were down in the 60s, so there you go. Yeah. <laughs> it has been shown every year, and you say it is the longest-running Christmas special of all time, and your book just came out this fall, so I assume this is still true, that this is the longest-running Christmas special of all time. As far as I know, it still is. And unfortunately, this is all the exposure many of us in the United States ever get to a reindeer. The first thing you, or you say after you talk about Rudolph is that Rudolph wasn't special with his red nose. That's another error in the show. They made it sound like he was born with this birth defect. <laughs> Turns out to save us all. I wish I could talk to you about this movie, but I've never seen it. Perhaps that's good thing. <laughs> what are you telling me? This is not possible. <laughs> well, A, I wasn't born in North America. B, I lived most of my first few years in Kenya. And C, I haven't seen the movie. But other than that... Well, there's some good music in it. You'd like it. Okay. It's very charming. I hope Elvis's version. No, I'm no, afraid not. Not no. worth watching then. <laughs> oh, no, you'll you'll be catching out all the reindeer errors. Oh, and, and one of them is that that the other it's a bully. It's a movie about bullying. Oh. You know, his his nose lights up. It, it also makes a noise. They never talk about the noise, but also when it lights up, it, it makes this this sound. And um, the, the other reindeer children in reindeer school are terrified of him. They back away oh. and then they bully him. And his father makes him a little cap for his to cover it so that the other students don't. This is hurting. Please don't go on. It's really hurting me. It's terrible. My wife complains when we watch wildlife movies and they have the wrong species named for the wrong place in the wrong country. Yeah. And I need to point that out. <laughs> Every wildlife movie well, we watch. But of course, um, Anybody who was raised watching this every year is going to think that reindeer all have black noses because that's how they all had these little black button noses. And that's what's normal for a reindeer. And reindeer don't have a black nose the way a dog does. No. And in fact, dogs' noses are cold and reindeer noses are hot. Well, depends. Depends on the conditions. Well, it's been studied because scientists who've studied it say it's the most remarkable organ. It's incredible, a very, very complex organ. And um, the, the, the basic system has been developed and, and 
important scientific studies have shown that the, the reindeer nose has this incredible um, series of tiny capillaries which can save heat so that a, a reindeer breathing out air that was in its body at 37 degrees Celsius, what 98 something in, in Fahrenheit, um, can save a tremendous amount of heat when it breathes out because of these capillaries. It's a bit okay. like a radiator in a car because wow. there's one example where they breathe, the air leaving the lungs is 37, leaving the nose is 21. So it saves 16 degrees, which it needs to do. If it's living in those brutally cold conditions, it can't afford to wait body heat. Okay, so it's a kind of heat exchange and it's capturing heat as it expels it. Exactly. Wow. And the other way around, if it's really hot and the reindeer needs to cool down, again, it can reduce that 40 degree uh, temperature. That's what a hundred and something brutal in, in Fahrenheit, 104 up or even higher that we're getting these days. It can reduce that temperature back to body temperature again with a heat exchanger in the nose. So it's a phenomenal okay. thing. You just answered a question I had uh, peculiar about these studies that I was reading about the reindeer noses, which started being published uh, around 2012. There was a study in the British Medical Journal yeah, yeah. that was talking about the um, microcirculation of reindeer right. uh, noses, yeah. which they call the mule. The, that area of the of the reindeer face is <laughs> oh, this is funny. Um, in the in this is in the British Medical Journal. Okay, yeah. it said it has a vascular density twenty five percent higher than that in humans, and they were comparing human. They had some uh, human volunteers, and then they had uh, reindeer volunteers, um, and uh, the results highlight the intrinsic physiological properties of Rudolph's legendary luminous red nose, which helped protect it from freezing during sleigh rides and to regulate the temperature of the reindeer's brain, which are essential factors for flying reindeer pulling Santa Claus's sleigh under extreme temperatures. <laughs> and the, 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 there are two things about this. One okay. is the, the, the YouTube video, which folks can look up very easily. So this animal is brought into a, a laboratory with a lot of very expensive looking equipment in it. Yes. It's led like a well-trained collie dog, the sort of thing you deal with, okay, in your dog training. Yeah. And, uh -huh. um, put on a, on a treadmill and they start speeding up the treadmill and they're using what's called a thermal imaging ca camera, not a regular camera like you or I might want to use when they're on holiday or taking photos of the kid. Right. And as it goes faster, it needs to eliminate heat because the body heat is building up, the color of the nose turns red. And yes. so this is an incredible demonstration of what Professor Ince and his colleagues we're talking about in the British Medical Journal. And you've already given the secret away about the date. Because once a year, many um, important medical journals and other scientific journals will have a touch of humor in them. And this paper, with the, both the introduction and the summary, mentioned Rudolph and yes. the flying ability. And of course, your, your listeners will now have figured out this was published in December. <laughs> Of course. Of course. That's the only time we care about reindeer, <laughs> unfortunately. But so 
so this these studies um, are explaining that the nose turns red in order to expel heat when the reindeer is exerting itself. Because remember, we were talking about um, the insulation properties of the hair, which also we didn't talk about how dense that coat is. So when the reindeer is exerting himself or herself, they're um, they're going to have a heat buildup. Yeah, which could be dangerous unless they can expel it. So uh, the nose with all those fine capillaries and the, the heat exchange function that you were talking about allows it to dissipate that. But then other studies I saw were studying the reindeer's reddening of the nose in a completely different context, which was protecting the nose from freezing when foraging in the snow. They eat lichen in, uh, under, that they have to find under snow cover. So they also have to find it, I presume, by scent through the snow. And uh, it was referencing an article. This is a Fox News video, I guess, and an article. Um, It says reindeer, when they're feeding, their noses are exposed to very low temperatures because they're snuffling around for food under the snow. This is uh, Ronald Kroger, uh, the university professor of functional zoology. They pump warm blood into the mule, which means it can be reddish because of the strong blood flow. Reindeer need to maintain sensitivity because if the nose was cold, they wouldn't be able to smell the lichen. Fair enough, yeah. Imagine your human schnoz sticking its face into minus 40, goodness knows what. <clears throat> Frostbite would be very early. Yes, and the capillaries would, would narrow. They would shrink. That's what happens to us, right? Yeah. When we get cold, that's why we get frostbite. But you can't have that if you need to be actively sniffing. Right. Yeah, so it... It is truly heat exchange because it functions for both heating and cooling yep. the animal. Imagine yourself, you, let's imagine Lisa, or maybe one of your um, listeners, putting on a heavy-duty down parka, insulated trousers, or pants as you call them in the States, and running 100 meters when it's 40 degrees outside. Mm-hmm. You'd be sweating in there. <laughs> Slightly. Well, yeah. if you're a reindeer, you can solve the problem. Because their coat is probably warmer than your parka. Oh, yeah, indeed. There are so many cool things about reindeer. Um, the, some of them I learned. <laughs> this podcast I found was uh, interesting facts about reindeer. It's called uh, Calming Facts. I th- it's, it's a podcast made to help you sleep. No, I've never heard of this one. You've done more research on this than I have. I'm telling you. There's a man named Travis Kemp. It's called Calming Facts. And in a soporific voice with some soft music in the background, he will tell you all these factoids about various creatures. And he covered the reindeer. Guess what month? So some of these facts I I learned, like their hair is hollow. Um, I can't remember if he was the one who talked about the fact that their feet click. Oh, they do, yes. Yeah, I, you mentioned that in your book. It's something you get used to, isn't it, when you're around reindeer? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Why would their feet click? They've got the bones um, sort of in the wrist area, lower wrist or finger area, uh, mm-hmm. we have as humans, that have that right over each other. And so there's a okay. sound as the as the, the the bones move during while they're walking or running. Yeah, I, I heard it compared to castanets. Yeah, that's a good good analogy. The same is it? sound, but not as well done as the Spanish ladies can do it. <laughs> not as rhythmic, I imagine. <laughs> a couple of hundred in the herd. 
Wow. It must, it must be a, 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 like a buzz Yeah, when there's so many. It's not like a, the clop of a horse hoof on pavement. It is a, a click produced inside the hoof, yeah. presumably so that when there's a whiteout, a blizzard or something, um, or even in the dark, they can keep tabs on each other in the herd because we are talking about a very social creature yeah. whose life depends upon interaction with the rest of the herd. Hang on a minute. You said hoof. It's actually just above the hoof. In what you oh, it is. It's in what we might call the wrist in comparative anatomy. Yeah, that's right. I did say it was the hoof. Um, there's this wonderful picture in the book, and of course the folks can't see the picture. One of my um, uh, writer group members took a picture of her mother, and this is very close to home, a little town called Wadena, Saskatchewan, which is not very far from Saskatoon. And here's mum on the family farm, riding a bicycle, and on one side of it is Raffi the dog, and the other side is Miss Mininruku, the reindeer. And they're just going for a ride. There's no leap, there's no nothing. They're just going for a little ride. Why not? So they enjoy human company. They Well, obviously. I mean, this way they wouldn't have gone if it didn't. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and that's not unusual, is it? I don't think so, no. I've had no. um take out reindeer... Um, calves that had never had a halter on them before, never been walked or led, and students were given by another client, given a leash, clipped it to the halter, and off they went for a walk, like training your dogs. Some no dogs kidding. behave really well, and some tend to pull on the leash. Well, same thing. So are, are they more tame than other wildlife that you've... Oh, yeah. I mean, the tame is, is really not quite the right word. You can pick right. a white-tailed deer fawn or a moose calf yes. and tame it by bottle feed. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. But domestication is partly taming, but mostly domestication because it's been evolved over those three plus thousand years, millennia. It's not just, you know, last week. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. that other story from Alaska of, 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 of a yoga class being developed yes. somebody on a reindeer farm. And the reindeer come out and these yogis are laying there doing their thing I, in positions that I wouldn't dream of trying to get into. And uh, a reporter took some photographs and there's one lying down right amongst the yogis and another one scratching its ear, standing amongst the group and yeah, no big deal. No, they're, uh, they're very peaceful, aren't they? Oh yeah, yeah except the bulls. And when the bulls yeah. start rutting, that's a different story. Don't mess with Ah. Yeah. Shall we, shall we discuss the rut? <laughs> <laughs> Basically what happens is that in, in summer, testosterone levels in the males are very low. They're not totally uh, disappeared, but they're very low. The antlers start to grow very rapidly, two centimeters a day, which is the best part of an inch a day. Wow. You can practically watch them growing, not quite close to it. Um, yeah. And at the end of the summer, the testosterone levels start to rise very rapidly. The mm -hmm. antlers, in, in, this is in entire bulls, not the castrates. And um, the antlers grow to an enormous length. They, they end up longer than the deer is, the reindeer is tall, which is quite a thought. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, at this point, the, 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 um, the velvet, the soft tissue on the outside is rubbed off. So you see yes. this classic. It, it can look a bit gory. Oh, very, very messy. Mm -hmm. Blood everywhere. 
spirit. Yeah, it looks like it slaughtered somebody. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it looks really enough. But I think they rub it off because if you think about, you've probably never done this, but if you have a scab on your hand from hurt yourself, are you clever enough to leave it alone? <laughs> no, it, bo- it feels like something alien on you that doesn't belong there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it bothers you. Yes. And, and sometimes it's itchy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At a certain stage in the healing. Yeah. Well, I think the, the velvet has dried up, the blood supply is cut off, and so they, they rub it. So the, the, the rut gets really strong. The bulls start to show distinct interest in the females. Um, and Who are also going through their own yeah, readiness. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And the bulls, once they go through this rut, they lose 25% of their body weight. Wow. Because they quit eating. And they're only thinking about one thing. <laughs> Nothing else. Testosterone is driving to a certain well-known behavior, shall we say. Yeah, I used to teach in a high school. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so you want to define <laughs> flame and response? Well, basically, the male has this organ in the base of his nose that uh, can detect the smells of a, a cow in estrus, uh, the hormonal changes, the pheromones, of course. And... Um, what he does in many, many species, not fortunately in humans, is he lifts his nose into the air and curls his upper lip and, and gets the maximum amount of scent and he can test. And if you imagine that going on at a cocktail party, it could be <laughs> a, a, a major of event like a conference with you know, 50, 50 men and women who be kind of shambolic. So luckily it's become vestigial in humans. And there's a one- I don't know. I think I saw it at AWP. <laughs> Now then, <laughs> uh, there's a wonderful uh, description that goes way back. It's the most poetic one I've ever read in a book by Count George Turberville, published in 1576, so quite a while ago. And he's describing when the, the, um, the, the, the bull, these are red deer he's talking about, but it's the same in horses or reindeer or whatever. And they're getting into the rut to make their fault, as he says. For when they smell the hind, they raise their nose up into the air and look aloft, as though they gave great thanks to nature, which gave them so great delight. Now, he didn't know about pheromones, but he certainly saw the behavior, and that's what yes. he interpreted it as. And, and I've seen that expression on cats. Yeah, yeah. They're picking up pheromones in this reproductive situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of that special gland, That's right. which there's argument about whether or not humans have it. Yeah, and, and uh, the, the suggestion is mostly that it's vestigial, and then there's one or two people that suggest a certain percentage do, but it's certainly mm-hmm. not very functional anyway. I mean, we have sensitive noses. We can pick up smells, but we're nothing like a pig searching for truffles or a polar bear that can detect a female in heat one or two kilometers away. Wow. That's quite something. There are a couple more things that I would like to talk about before we go. And one of them is um, the story of Pollyanna. Oh, yes. Because the reindeer seem to be very sweet. Uh, so after I got to know them, I when I came back to your book, I, I was re- really feeling sorry for Pollyanna. <laughs> <laughs> so she ended up on a submarine. That's right. Well, she's in the re- in the Rudolph chapter because the, the, the journalist who reported it called her 
the title of his piece was something to do with Rudolf. I've exactly exactly. Oh, sure. Okay. Anyway, the the um, the Brits and the Russians were allies at the beginning of World War Two, and a, a British submarine captain came in touch with the Russian harbor and um, was he'd been underwater or, or sailing for a very long time and was running out of supplies and not happy and his wife couldn't push the the baby carriage through the snow. So the, the Russian um, senior officer said, well, we'll give you a reindeer to help. And this was a calf. And how Seemed like a good idea at the time. Right. So how they were going to get it onto the submarine? Well, they used the torpedo tubes. And they pushed it through a torpedo tube. And it ended up in the submarine for quite a long time and bonded with the people right away. Spent yes. all of its time in the captain's cabin the, the moss that the Russians had supplied ran out. So it started other dietary items, including some of the ship's papers. Which, oh, no. Yeah. And then when they got back to Britain, it was way too big to put through the, the torpedo tubes. It had grown oh, too much. So no. they somehow finagled it out of the conning tower and got it back onto land. And it Thank ended goodness. up at the London Zoo and did fine. Never pulled a pram, I assume. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I don't know. Certainly no reference to that in the article. It's, it sounds like such a frat boy plan. Well, it was just charming. I think that was... The yes. Yeah, yeah. Just a lovely gesture. Let's talk about reindeer cyclones, because somebody posted a video on Twitter of a reindeer cyclone in progress taken uh, the video is taken from a drone have you seen that video no i haven't it, it went viral and I, I will share links to it i think it was made for a documentary on the vikings does that sound right could be yeah who were dependent on reindeer and one of the ways that reindeer would foil the the vikings and it, this may be the first reference we have of this phenomenon of the reindeer cyclone so was that something that you ever witnessed yourself no, no, but I imagine what you're referring to is the way they circle. Yes, that's what they call it. Yeah, it's a dramatic name for yeah. um, this behavior that you also see in fish. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And they circle very rapidly, uh, mm -hmm. a tight circle. And, mm -hmm. um, when, it, when animals are being herded, that often happens. Bison the same when they're under threat. Oh, they are. Yeah. Okay, so they are, reindeer are not the only ungulate who, who r runs in a circle. They say, I saw that it was always counterclockwise. And then when you watch the cyclone from the drone shot, it is clockwise. Yeah, I've seen both. On yeah, yeah. You know, I watched it in, with a bit of the herding, but not in Mongolia because they were so tame. But uh, sometimes in the Finnish and, and Scandinavian situations, they do this circling thing. But um, Okay, so it's a response to threat? Uh, yeah, or just being herded. I suppose that's a threat. So their response is to run all of them in a circle. And then in the eye of the cyclone is where presumably you find your weaker, your younger, the, the, that the faster, stronger um, individuals are on the outside. They also have to run faster because they have further to go. Yep. Yeah. And then on the inside, you would just naturally collect those who are more vulnerable. So they're protected. Might be very interesting to identify individuals because do they change? like a skein of geese flying overhead, it isn't always the same leader. And those ones on the outside might, you know, swap with other ones in the cyclone. 
but you okay. have to know which one is which. Because they're going to get overheated too, exerting themselves. Yeah. yeah, so I wonder if the ones closest to the inside move outside and the ones outside move inside. The fish I do that. Know. That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not always the same fish um, when you see what you know what what looks like a blob of Which glimmering is fish stuff, isn't it? Avoiding predators. Yes. Quite amazing. But yes, but they're trying. Yeah, they, so they all come together. Right. But it, they're swirling, which I guess is bewildering to something that you're trying to bite them and, and uh, the individuals are changing. So how do you, how do you grab hold of one? You have to just well, dive in. In lots of places, they, the fish form those balls and the porpoise or whatever come howling through, but mm -hmm. not target an individual animal because it's too confusing. Yes. Yeah. So these, um, the footage of the reindeer cyclones are breathtaking. You know, the, the one from the drone is taken from a great height. Must be something to see. So it's mesmerizing, this twirling. And it also looks like it looks it looks like there's a flaw in the footage. Really? Because there are these white shapes that are expanding and contracting, and sometimes they look like it is a white reindeer. Yeah. And then other times it's not the right shape. And I think what it is is the white reindeer in the herd blend in with the snow cover underneath them huh. so your eye from that height cannot distinguish and, and i don't know what the resolution of the file is anyway sounds a bit like the bathwater running out <laughs> yes but, but there are no no reindeer in the southern hemisphere so we don't know if they go the other way. <laughs> sorry about that couldn't help me. no i love it I was pondering counterclockwise versus clock. Is it always this way? And people were arguing about it a little bit, but nobody said that because they weren't clever enough. So it is mesmerizing. You end up staring at it, but then when you're on the ground with it, it is breathtaking. It's thunderous. They're gorgeous. And they're, they're all kind of wooly like wolves, you know, grizzled. And yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful until you realize that uh, there, there are so few of them. Yeah, that's right. Yes, you were telling me the other day that um, it's something like 90%. Depending on which population, yes. Staggering. Yeah. Both in, in North America and in Russia. Now, when you said 90%, there was a time span. Yeah, over 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Or in some cases longer, uh, even 100 years. But the most recent disasters are much shorter, like you suggest. What seems to be the cause? Oh, multifactored. A lot of it to do with hu humans, uh, but not entirely. They're highly sensitive to all kinds of human disturbance. And I can think of 17 different. We won't go through them now because everybody's clearly asleep. No, no, but uh, say, what are the top three? Well, um, uh, mining. Uh, they're so oh. sensitive, yeah. So... Um, Logging is another huge problem because they just can't tolerate being harassed. And mining, oil exploration, the pipelines, they can't do their proper migrations. Uh, okay. And then there's fire. There's even uh, climate change, which is creating problems for nutrition availability. Hydroelectric developments, airstrips, noise, artificial light, and on and on. It's, it's pretty nasty. And uh, in Russia... There's 18 of 19 great herds decreasing. Oh. Pretty staggering. And the worst yes. one is in Quebec, in eastern Canada, and northern Quebec, Leaf River herd. There's a 92% reduction 
from 700,000 a few years ago to 5,500. In just a few years. That's right. That's pretty staggering. That is. Yep. And then the pandemic affected the domesticated population as well, right? Yeah, that's been a different thing. Um, mm-hmm. That's affected on the humans more than on the animals. Mm. Because the it's their livelihood. Yeah, that's right. Um, and suddenly there's no tourists. Things like parades and uh, photo ops and, that's right. and all. Which the tourists yeah. pay for. The, the only one really dealt with that extremely well is the Scottish one, and the Cairngorm herd where they've had an adopter reindeer, delightful thought. Um, you send them a bit of money and that keeps their feed and the salaries for the staff going. And they have a huge Facebook presence, huge. Just a I'm going to include that. will have several hundred likes. I mean, that's amazing. One, sometimes over a thousand likes for a single picture. Because they do make pretty good companion animals. That's right. I've corresponded with them and said, who doesn't like to get a nice picture of a reindeer? That's pretty thoughtful. And they're very sweet and friendly, as you will see in some of these videos that I will share in the show notes. Uh, They're very charming, peaceful. And they've now, with the relaxing of the uh, rules, um, they're they're designing a program where you can go and visit the reindeer, but they set up a time frame. So Mm -hmm. you you get your time slot at 7.15 or whatever it is to go and see them. And then the next group can come in at the next appropriate time slot mandated by the government. And so that's, that's very clever. And they, they yes. keep going. Yeah. And they like people. I guess they come to see us as yeah. members of the herd. Yeah. Well, if anybody cares to look at the, the Cairngorm reindeer herd, C-A-I-R-N-G-O-R-M. It's the Scottish Highlands. It's the only herd in Britain. And these animals superb um, pictures, sometimes two or three a day. And they've all got four and 500 or 800 likes. It's phenomenal, brilliant. I will include it, yeah. yes. Absolutely brilliant. Can, can I just tell one of the most moving things? Oh, please do, yes. Okay, I've, I've come into a reindeer camp high in the mountains. It's just below the tree line. So there's a few trees and some scattered bushes around. And my arm is hurting between my wristwatch and my elbow really badly and I don't know why I haven't fallen off my horse there's no tick bites nothing but it's so painful I can't even pick up a, a, a cup of tea and people now where were you again in Mongolia you were in Mongolia and you were there doing this work for the t- research research what have you with this team um, and here I am stuck. I can't lift a bowl of tea. Now, for, people can tell from my accent, I might like tea. Well, do. <laughs> so um, what am I going to do? So I speak to my translator about this problem. And he says, well, let's go and see the shaman. So we go over to her, her teepee, as they call them, Ertz. And she's 103 years old. She's really ancient lady. And she's the, the shaman. And uh, we go in there and... Um, Bianca tells her what's going on and she says well come over here and um, she's blind she's got severe cataracts and she couldn't see me but she could obviously hear me she says well come over here because part of their culture is lots of different cultural things so she asked me to come and sit by her and she feels my arm asks Bianca a few questions which I answer then she picks up a big leaf from behind a big 
great big thing. It's about a foot long and eight inches wide. And she says, wrap your arm in this and heat it up on the stove two or three times during the night, which I do. Luckily, I've got some first aid bandages of my own, of course. And so keep I'll, it in place. Yeah, keep it in place. Okay. And in the morning, my arm is 100% normal. And oh, my goodness. We go back to thank the lady. Turns out her family, she's a shaman. Her daughter is a shaman. One of the veterinary technicians I'm working with is the veterinary technician. Well, my family has the same sort of structure. My wife's a physician, my son's a physician, and I'm the vet. So very similar parallel families. Okay, yeah. It allows the photograph to be taken of me sitting next to her, which Biamba took. It's probably the last one ever taken of her because that winter she died. But oh. one of my students, when I was lecturing, telling them about this, thought, are you calling her a doctor? Mm -hmm. Kind of rude about it. I said, of course, she has 3,000 years of medical knowledge built up over time. She knows things that we can't even dream about because we don't know about traditional medicine. And for me, that was a very important thing that I'll never forget because it all to do with reindeer and the shaman up there and just this incredible knowledge that's built up over those millennia. Phenomenal. And it worked. Yeah, absolutely. My arm was and you don't know why? You don't know what the leaf was? No idea. No idea. <laughs> I couldn't ask her, and I wouldn't have understood anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's amazing. It was. It was phenomenal. And just in the camp, just your book is—it's filled with stories of uh, encounters with the people of these cultures. Wow, this has been great fun, Terry. Good. I've enjoyed it too. Excellent. Yes. Yes. Um, thank you so much for being on my podcast and helping me learn to appreciate reindeer. Well, I think you knew a lot about them already and you've done some terrific research. Uh, thank you. I did a little bit of homework. And uh, yeah, and your book is about so much more than reindeer, really. You know, it's, um, it's your adventures. It's a travel log. And uh, if you read this book, which you should, you should buy this book and you should buy it for your friends. Uh, supporting your local bookstores, but um, you will be taken on an adventure all around the world to wherever there are reindeer and meet the people who live with them or close to them and study them and learn about their ways. And maybe you'll figure out what was in that leaf. And in some cases, drink their milk, an important part of the world. Yes, we didn't even talk about that. That's in there cultures. Yes, it's very nutrient-rich. Oh, terrific. Did you drink it? Yes. How is it? Well, it was put in tea, so I couldn't tell. Oh, but it must have tasted a little different, no? Sure, it does, yes. Yep, yep. There's a picture in the book of a, of a lady actually milking a reindeer. Um, why not? Yeah. And we also didn't talk about the um, your first encounter when you, that that picture that will that you shared with me that I will share with our listeners of the reindeer coming up to you. Yeah, yeah, it was staggering. I was just standing by one of those teepee structures they call them urts. Mm -hmm. In particular, I'd arrived in camp, and four reindeer walked up and checked me out. They appeared to be <laughs> me and seeing who I was. And my caption says, "Who's this guy? Let's check him out." <laughs> It was extraordinary. They were not afraid of you at all. Were you afraid of them? No. Were you a little nervous? No, not at all. You were just charmed? Just 
Interested, charmed is a good word. Yeah, you know, why not? Hi, hi guys. Well, this was very fun. Yes, indeed. Very much enjoyed it. Yeah, I learned so much. <laughs> you charmer, you. <laughs> ah, goodness. You won't put that on the pod, will you? I might. <laughs> I was surprised you behaved yourself. <laughs> So I imagine you've been behaving yourself? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I have border collies. Bad luck. We've been visiting with Jerry Haig, veterinarian and author of Reindeer Reflections, Lessons from an Ancient Culture, released this fall from Rocky Mountain Books. Join us next on Christmas Day, December 25th, for an absolutely magical conversation with Debbie Garcia Bengachea, author of Mini Horse, Mighty Hope, how a herd of miniature horses provides comfort and healing. Her tiny therapy horses will pull on heartstrings like no other creatures you've ever known, I promise. I saved it for Christmas for a reason, so put a post-it on your eggnog. Thank you so much for listening and for loving animals. Your time and devotion mean a lot to us. If you want to learn more, you'll find links to everything we referenced in our show notes on our website, thisanimallife.com. Our graphic artist is Sarah K. Martin. Our podcast theme composer is Chip Salerno. If you like this episode, please subscribe to This Animal Life on your favorite podcast provider and share it with a friend who loves animals as much as you do. Let's spread the love for animal life.